We just finished a three-week sermon series on the little short Old Testament book of Ruth. Ruth is a book contained in the ancient Hebrew scriptures, uh, and um, we studied that for the last three weeks. We called it Ruth, a love story, and it was basically the very, very skinny version of that story is that it was the story of a woman named Omi who had left Bethlehem in Israel to move to uh, the country of Moab during a tough time with her husband and her two sons. While living in Moab, his, their sons married two girls from Mo, for Moabite girls. And then in time, uh, Naomi's husband and her two sons died. Naomi comes back to Bethlehem years later. Uh, one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, insists on coming back with her, even though her mother-in-law could do nothing for her. She would have been better off to stay in Moab where she had support and family and and familiarity, but she went to uh, Bethlehem with her mother-in-law to, to care for her in her elderly widow years. And so we have, um, you know, we have the whole story of, of Ruth coming back and, and just serving and working in the fields and trying to eke out an existence in a time of the history of the world. Even today, this is still true in some parts of the world more than others. But back then, especially, women didn't have as many rights as men. They, were, they, were, uh, they just didn't have the, the, some of the things that we take for granted today in more recent cultures and Western cultures. It was just a rough time. And Naomi was destitute, and Ruth came back to eke out an existence for her mother-in-law. And in time, a man named Boaz, who was an older relative of her deceased father-in-law, uh, stepped into the laws of the land as a kinsman redeemer and saw Ruth, the foreign girl, helping out her mother-in-law and serving her. He saw her doing that, and he, he stepped into an opportunity to be a redeemer. He married her, um, raised up a, a legacy of ch children and property in her deceased husband's name, and the whole redemption laws of property and, and family were put in place. We discussed that last week. Now, Ruth and Boaz got married and, and uh, made a beautiful story together of sacrifice and service for the good of others. We just finished that last week. I want to piggyback off of that a little bit here and look at something remarkable in a talk that we're, we're calling Descendants. Descendants, and that's today's conversation. Now, when you think of descendants, you think about people who are generationally, you think of generations. And when you read the Bible, I don't know if you've ever read the Bible through from one end to the other, but there's a whole lot of um, begots in the old, that's the old, the old King James way, the begots, you know. It's, there's a lot of, you know, so-and-so fathered so-and-so. There's a lot of genealogies given about people's descendants. It was very important to kind of keep track of lineage. This is a, uh, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, was a history of the nation of Israel. So a lot of the uh, records there are their national, um, you know, their lineage is there. Their, their legacy was tied to their property and the tribes that was given to them. So, you know, in the New Testament, you see some of that same thing going on there, especially when it came to Jesus and his lineage back to King David. So if you ever read your Bible through, those are a little bit boring sometimes. I mean, I'm not trying to make the Bible, you know, the bad guy here because it's not, but it's a little boring sometimes. I'm just being real. Like reading the descendants and the genealogies is not exactly riveting. If you like that kind of thing, more power to you. But it's just a, like a little bit of, I can't even pronounce half the names, you know. And I'm not one to make fun of anyone's name because I'm Arlen, you know. But still, it's their heart. And then... Um, the Levitical laws are also a little bit dry, but that's just me talking here. So there's lists of descendants. 
And we saw some last week at the end of the story of Ruth. I want to take us back to those real quick here. Ruth chapter 4, verse 17. Then the neighbor women said, Now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. As we mentioned, David was the uh, famous king of Israel, the, the most famous king of Israel and a very important part in the history. Almost all of us know about David on some level. And he was a descendant of Ruth and Boaz. So when we finish the Ruth and Boaz story, you get to the David story. And uh, I mean, without, without David's story, we wouldn't care about Ruth and Boaz. But without Ruth and Boaz, there'd be no David. So that was pretty cool. And we saw that last week. Now, after this verse... Well, we, we didn't read the next couple verses. They list some of those genealogies of descendants to us. So let's do that now. Verse 18. This is the genealogical record of the ancestor, of their ancestor, Perez. So we're going back, we're even going back before Ruth and Boaz, to Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Guy sounds kind of fishy to me. That was a dad joke for you. You're welcome right there. I was saving that for a while. All right. I know, I should have. Yeah. Oh, well. Missed opportunity. Uh, anyhow, Salmon, let's go. Where, where's he at? Verse 21. Salmon was the father of Boaz. I just made fun of Boaz's dad. I feel bad now. Uh, was the father of Boaz. And Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. So how cool is it that um, the baby of Ruth and Boaz was the grandfather of King David? In other words, there was a whole lot more impact from Boaz and Ruth's story than we could have ever imagined. Like, when Boaz, okay, when Ruth was deciding to leave her home country and move to Israel as a foreigner to take care of her mother, and, and times when that wasn't always f- smiled upon real big, and take care of her elderly mother-in-law at, at her own expense, saying to her mother-in-law, where you go, I will go, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, I'm gonna, nothing's gonna separate us. When she did that out of love to her mother-in-law, when Boaz stepped into the redeemer role and married her later on and, 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 and leveraged some of his own wealth and, and future for their family name and, and, and for the legacy of their family in Israel, and all that we saw, when Boaz and Ruth did the right thing for others, they knew it, they, they had no idea that one of the other things that would happen after their life was even over was David, their great-grandson, would be the awesome future king of the nation of Israel, descendants. Now, I want us to look at a different story in the Bible today, a different story that's a bit unrelated, but in the end of the day, we'll tie it all together, okay? Let's look at another time in Israel's history when they conquered the city of Jericho. Now, To appreciate this, here's what we have to do. Remember that the children of Israel, their their forefathers, their ancestors, were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived in this land that uh, was being developed, but largely uh, in many places still fairly unoccupied. Um, In some places not 
but uh, they were promised this land as their future heritage that God was giving them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of the nation of Israel. In time, the family found themselves living in Egypt during difficult, a difficult season, and things were okay there for a while until eventually the children of Israel became slaves. They were enslaved by the Egyptians and spent hundreds of years growing as a nation, but growing as a slave people. And, and as they lived in, in Egypt and were oppressed horribly for those, for those centuries, eventually uh, the time came when they were miraculously by the power of God and his help, the leadership of Moses, they were freed from, from slavery in Egypt and they came back to that promised land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers. But even after they left Egypt, they, God you know, parted the Red Sea, you know, destroyed the army behind them. Miracles happened. But as they crossed over to this promised land again, don't forget that along the way, they, they spent 40 years getting ready to go in. 40 years of maturing and getting ready to go into the promised land because it was going to be a tough time there just settling down with all the enemies they would have around them. And so, as they moved towards the promised land, they had people attacking them there. The Moabites, the Ammonites, other nations attacked them. They fought wars. They, they, they had to defend themselves. They sometimes would ask permission to just kind of pass through an area. And instead of being allowed, they would be attacked. And they, they won some amazing battles. And they were finally to the promised land. Moses was older. Moses died. And now Joshua, who was the general of the army, now became the leader of the nation of Israel just in time to take them into this promised land where they're going to have a whole lot more enemies and a whole lot more trouble as they settled down where God was taking them. So Joshua was taking them there. And before they, went in, before they crossed over the Jordan River as a nation, before they moved into the, back into this, this land their, their ancestors came from, they decided to do some recon scouting. So they sent some spies into the area to check out some of the surrounding regions, some cities here and there, and, um, and watch things. One place they checked out was a city called Jericho. And Jericho was a, a strong city. It was built with most cities, if they wanted to feel safe, they built walls around them. And to the, to the degree of the, the magnitude of the wall was the degree of the safety of the city because obviously people might come, sneak in during the night especially, and try to get through the walls of a city and, and, and conquer it. In, in those times where the world was always at war and always tribalistic and always conquering everybody all the time. And so this city was built with magnificent walls, very strong city, but uh, it was one of the places that the spies were checking out before they crossed over into a new territory that would be hostile to them like the last 40 years have been against them as well. Let's pick up the story there in Joshua chapter 2 and verse 1. Are you ready? Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. I'm going to pause here. And before someone, we get tempted to make the usual jokes about the guys being on a recon job and going to a prostitute's house and staying there, wink, wink, or whatever we would think. I want you just for a moment to appreciate the smartness of this because, well, first of all, think about, the, about Rahab, the prostitute, who, where they stayed. This is a woman who, by the way, is, I mean, I know that obviously we're 
we're definitely frowning upon these practices and so on. In a, in a, first of all, how does she have a place for them to stay? Um, picture the Old West. You ever watch those old Western movies, you know? And you have the saloon, and the saloon keeper also has a restaurant and also has a brothel. It also has a bunch of motel rooms up the stairs for people to stay at, right? Like multiple businesses in one. So here's a prostitute, and she has a, pl- she has a house. Maybe she has other ladies there. And she has places where people can stay. And these spies choose to stay there and don't read into it, I don't think, any more than you need to. Probably a very smart move, because if you wanted to stay somewhere discreetly while you're a spy, this is a great place to stay discreetly. Because she would specialize probably in discretion. I mean, you don't want to go, if you're, if you're a spy in the land, you don't want to go to the Grand Hotel and walk in, you know, in your, pulpit, you know, in your Lamborghini chariot and uh, just walk in and, like, you own the place. I mean, you're trying to kind of be low-key. So they, they walk over to her, they stay at Rahab's place where they could find some discretion while they're spying out the area with people who are hostile against them. And um, it was a smart move. Now, as we picture that together, what I'd like us to do is, um, is, is and by the way, Rhea, before you give her a hard time for being a prostitute, uh, I'm, not, I'm not defending the, you know, obviously this was not, Jericho's not a moral city. As we know about Jericho, it was a very crazy place. It's not like they had the copy of the Torah next to them telling them how to behave in their sexual conduct. But on top of all of that, she's making it in a man's world. We've been discussing this for three weeks. It was a man's world. And whether it was the ability to own property or whatever, here's a woman who found a way through what she was doing, including renting out rooms, apparently, to um, make it for herself. And these guys are staying there that night while they spy out the land. Let's continue the story in verse number two. But someone, someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come into your house, for they have come here to spy out the whole land. Hmm. Can you imagine what Rahab might be thinking right now? Because I'm sure she does not want to be in the bad graces of the king of Jericho. Let's be honest. Women like Rahab tend to get the raw end of the deal when the powers that be are mad at you. We see this in the world today sometimes, that someone like her, people appreciate her services when they want them, but when they want to throw someone under the bus for any kind of moral outrage, she could be the first to go. I mean, she's not exactly in a position of strength in a lot of ways. And so for the king to be upset with her, I mean, this could be bad news for her. And now he's telling her, you have spies staying in your place. That may look bad on her. He says, send them out right away so we can deal with them. Now, the smart play for Rahab might have been to say, yes, sir, Mr. King of Jericho, absolutely remember that I am a good citizen and I comply very well. Here are the spies. And when I need a favor sometime, remember to be there for me. Right? Because this was a tough spot for her to be in, in the story. But that's not what she did. Verse 4. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, Yes, there were men here earlier, but I didn't know who they were from, where they were from. Uh, they left the town at dusk. As the gates were about to close, I don't know where they went, 
But if you hurry, you could probably catch up with them. So she's kind of fibbing here, right? Oh, those guys? Oh, yeah, I know them. They went that way. By the way, in life, never believe someone when they tell you they went that way. So anyhow, she's like, oh, yeah, they left. I mean, you know, we closed the gate at night because the gates of a city like that would close at night, obviously, because you, you want people to come and go during the day. Merchants and other people can come. But you don't want people sneaking up through the fields and attacking your city at night. So before the night was, would start, the gates would close. And she says, oh, those guys, yeah, they left town before the gates closed, and they went that way. But that's not what actually happened. In verse 6, it says, actually, she had taken them up to the roof and had hidden them beneath bundles of flax that she had laid out. So she actually was hiding them before the guy, and just in case the guys deci decided to search the house because they didn't believe her, they were on the roof hidden under bundles of flax. Now, why would she do that? Like, why would she not just, like, play it cool and do what the king needed and try and keep her favor in the city? But it worked. Verse 7, so the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. Why? Because that's where the rest of their nation was from. They were still across the Jordan. So they went and searched for them near that area. And as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. And the guys are safe for now, but guess what? They're also in the city with the gate shut and people looking for them. Verse 8, before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk with them. Now she's going to have her conversation with the spies. I know, she says, I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight, to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Let's pause here and dissect some of that. First of all, she says, everyone here knows all about you all coming here. And remember, this is a different world and a different time. Not just in the, the world's different today in different places as far as, you know, how cultures and, and how peaceful things are. But in, especially back then in a, in a world full of conquest, they had heard in this, in this land that these Israelite people who had left the area and ended up as slaves in Egypt, they had heard the stories of how they were brought out of Egypt miraculously. They heard the stories about how they were brought. It was amazing. I mean, they disrupted the whole empire of Egypt. So it kind of made the news, you know, people, the word spread. They came out of Egypt. They, they were brought across the Red Sea through miraculous means. They, everyone heard how the, the, the Israelites were, were in this area on their way back to their land. They were on their way back and how that people attacked them and no one beat them. Bigger armies than them attacked them. And every time Israel won completely. And the people of this land were afraid. They were afraid of what was obviously the hand of God in bringing Israel from slavery back to this area. They were afraid. And so Rahab tells them, she says, look, we're all afraid. 
But here's what people do when they're afraid. First of all, they could ignore it and, and deny it. Or they can be, in this case, the people could have been fearful and decided to resist. But Rahab took a different approach. She decided to be fearful of what was happening. And instead of resisting, she decided to believe on their Lord, their God. And she says, I believe that the Lord, your God, is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. And, and while I'm looking at all of this, I'm going to decide instead of hearing this and, 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 and everybody else not being sure what this means and resisting, I'm going to believe and I'm going to step in. I'm going to lean into it. I'm going to help. I'm going to put my faith that he is God of all and I'm going to act upon that faith. And so I'm helping you. Verse 12, here's what she says to them. Verse 12, now swear to me by the Lord, she said, swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. She's looking out for her, for her family now. She's looking out to, for, for their well-being. She says, give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all of their families. So she's basically making a deal. And here's what they, here's what they said in verse 14. Uh, we offer our lives as a guarantee for your safety, the men agreed. If you don't betray us, we will keep our promise and be kind to you when the Lord gives us the land. So here's what they were saying. They were saying, look, You've kept us safe so far. You've sent this people looking for us away. And if you get us out of the city safely, because we're still here, we, give, we, we offer our lives as guarantee. In other words, cross our heart and hope to die. We promise we will take care of you in the long run because of what you're doing for us. Verse 15, then since Rahab's house was built into the town wall, she let them down by a rope through the window. Picture uh, uh, houses and, and inside the walls of the city there are tiers and you wouldn't want to have a window on the bottom level because again, people are trying to keep the city safe. But if you live in the upper tier of the city, you may have a window on the wall. She did. And she lets them down out of the city wall through a rope, by a rope through a window. And they escape into the night. Verse 16, then... She says to them, escape to the hill country. She's telling them what to do. Escape to the hill country. I know that you need to go back across the Jordan, but they're looking for you. Escape to the hill country and hide there for three days from the men searching for you. Then when they have returned, you can go on your way. But you need to hide in the hills for a few days until they come back and they're done looking for you. Before they left, the men told her, we will be bound by the oath we have taken only if you follow these instructions. They're going to tell her how she, they're going to follow through on saving her family someday. They said, when we come into the land, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. They're saying, we need to know, everyone else doesn't know which house you're in. We will probably forget because it's nighttime, right? But, but people, don't know who, people coming with us will know who you are. Leave the scarlet rope hanging in the window so we know who you are, which house is yours. And all of your family members, your father, mother, brothers, and all your relatives, must be here inside the house. If they go out into the streets 
where, the, where battle's taking place. If, if they go out there and they get killed, that's not our fault. But if anyone lays a hand on people inside this house, we accept responsibility for their death. We will guarantee your safety, basically. If you betray us, however, we are not bound by this oath in any way. What did she say to them? She said, I accept your terms, she replied. She sent them on their way, leaving the scarlet rope hanging from the window. And in that moment, Rahab decided to do something. She decided there's a God who's creator of heaven and earth, and I see him working, and I have a chance to resist it, run from it, or I have a chance to lean into it. And she put her faith that God was who he, said, who, who he was, the maker of heaven and earth. And in that faith, she decided to step in and take action. And she makes a plan. And we're going we're gonna to look at some more verses, but several chapters later. Because what happens next, we don't have time to read today. Let me tell you a little bit. Um, the Israelites basically all cross over the Jordan River back to the land that their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were once in before they were in slavery. They come across the Jordan River. Joshua, the new leader, who was the general, but now he's the leader because Moses has, has died. Jo Joshua is terrified of his responsibility. He has one of those breaking moments that leaders have where you almost bail and think, I can't do it. But God kind of has an appearance to, to Joshua and strengthens him to say, I'm with you, you can do this. Eventually, they find themselves at the city of Jericho. They march around the city for several days, each day for seven days. And the seventh day, they blow trumpets, and a miracle happens that is just a, like parting the Red Sea. It's just crazy. But, but the walls, or at least a big part of the walls to give access to the, to the nation of Israel, come crumbling down, which changes the dynamic and brings out a sudden reaction of, of, of conflict, and a fight breaks loose. And before it's all said and done, Israel conquers that part of the country against those who intended to oppose them. Now, we fast forward to that battle around and in Jericho, and it's found in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 22. Meanwhile, Joshua, that's the leader, Joshua said to the two spies, keep your promise. Now, I always wonder how he felt about their promise. He says, keep your promise, go to the prostitute's house, and bring her out along with all her family. I wonder if Joshua was like, you made a promise, and it's kind of complicated in the middle of what we're going through here, but keep your promise. I, don't, I wouldn't have made that promise. Maybe I would have if I would have been in your situation. I don't know, but you made a promise. Keep your promise, and go bring her and her family safely through this troubled time. Verse 23, the men who had been the spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, mother, brothers, and all the other relatives who were with her. They moved her whole family to a safe place near the camp of Israel. Out of the war-torn area, they brought her to the encampments of Israel, and she was kept safe with them there. Now, I don't know how much Rahab's family liked her or how close they were. I don't know. I, she, she has a mother and father and siblings here. I almost picture the typical parent. Have you met our son? He's a lawyer. He's a great guy. Our daughter is a, our other child's a doctor. Medical, great, great. We're so proud of them. Oh yeah, then there's Rahab. Um, what do we say about Rahab? Well, you know, everyone's got to do something for a living. She's a prostitute. I mean, was she the family pride and joy? 
I don't know. But I know one thing. In this moment right here, she saved their necks. Every one of her mom, her dad, her siblings, every one of them, by her step of faith in this part of her life, she saved them all. And they're brought to a safe place near the camp of Israel. Then the Israelites burned the town and everything in it. Only the things made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron were kept for the treasury of the Lord's house. Verse 25, so Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute. Don't miss the end of this here. So Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house. Why? Because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho. Why? Because when everyone else was hearing and fearing and, and resisting, she decided to hear and fear, but to believe and to act on her belief in God in a situation that changed everything. And it says, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. Now, to this day means to the time of this writing. Can we just for a minute here pause? That's kind of the, the she lived happily ever after tagline. Can we pause and just ask ourselves how happily ever after was that tagline? Rahab is now living in a, amongst the Israelites, a bunch of people who are used to everyone around them trying to kill them. They weren't exactly great relationships amongst foreign people at the time. They have been at war for 40 years. They, they come out of slavery only to be attacked over and over again. Now they're in conquest mode. They are, they are not trusting of foreigners. They have watched themselves hook up with foreigners like the Moabites and, and, and sexual sin came in through their, their practices that they came together and, and the children of Israel ended up basically, you know, getting some setbacks because of God's judgment on them. I mean, these are people who aren't exactly really possibly warm to foreigners. So how is Rahab feeling living among the Israelites? Does she feel welcome as a foreign girl? Not just a foreigner. Not just a foreigner. Rahab was a prostitute again. Very much against the Torah. Very much against the teachings of the book. Very much against, you know, the morality that they felt God handed down to them about how to live and conduct yourselves well. She was a prostitute. She's in the trafficking realm. She's, she's in Israel now. Okay? I mean, she's a foreigner with a bad past. What kind of awesome life did she have to settle down here? Was it good? I don't know. Did they accept her very well? It doesn't tell us. We don't know much about her at all. But what we do know is that Rahab, her parents, her siblings, all were saved because despite who she used to be. See, that's the question that we all wrestle with, right? Don't, don't we? People wrestle with their past. And, and we wrestle with giving other people a break beyond their past. There's a lot of us in this world today, and we like to point the fingers at others, but a lot of people have a hard time letting someone with a past ever get past their past. Because we might let them do certain things, but other things were like, well, not you. After all, your past. Rahab was either the prostitute in a foreign hostile city, or she's a woman of faith who, despite all that she has ever done and been a part of, a woman of faith who stepped out in faith and saved the day for the spies as well as for her family. Now, why do I tell you this story? Here's the payoff. Because it's a fascinating story, and then you have to add the missing ingredients. Remember I told you we're calling this descendants and genealogies? 
Well, in the book of Ruth, we read some genealogies earlier, didn't we? What we didn't read was more genealogies. If we were to go to the New Testament, the life of Jesus, in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke, the life of Jesus is, is recorded. And when Jesus' life is recorded, they backlog his genealogy, geneal, genealogical record. They tell us Jesus, who his parents, and, and you know, all the way up through since way back ancient times. And it's the exact same list in Matthew that it was in Ruth, because obviously Matthew and Ruth have the same list because it's the same people. But I want us to read those genealogies one more time from the book of Matthew as they give us the lineage of Jesus' life. Are you ready? Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Here it is. Salmon, remember Salmon? Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Salmon, the father of Boaz, married Rahab, the prostitute. Salmon and Rahab were the parents of Boaz the last three weeks. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. See, here's the thing. In most genealogical records of those times, the women weren't mentioned. Bad deal, girls. You go through all the work of giving birth to the child, carry him in your room, your husband sounds like a big dope while you're giving birth. Hey. You know, and then they mention the guys' names, not the girls' names, right? But in Matthew's genealogies, he actually mentions several of the women in the story of Jesus, in his back ancestry. And we find here that Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. We've studied Ruth the last few weeks. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. So, here's how the genealogies worked in our stories the last few weeks. Salmon and Rahab married, and they had baby Boaz, who grew up, and he married the foreign girl from Moab, Ruth, who had a baby named Bobed, who had a baby named Jesse, who had a baby named David. Now, why do we tell that story today? Because I think it's pretty cool Boaz grew up in a home where he witnessed, don't miss it, he witnessed his dad and mom with a very interesting past. Boaz grew up in a home where his mom was a foreigner and from a prostitute. Did he watch his parents face discrimination? Maybe. Was his mom treated like an outsider because she wasn't one of them or because of who she used to be? I don't know. Was she well-loved, perhaps? I don't know. Either way, did he hear the story over and over? Hey, Dad and Mom, tell me the story of how you met. Hey, Mom, how'd you come here? Hey, hey Dad, how'd you guys come to be a couple? Right? Somehow, in Boaz's growing up, he had a mom who, though not from Israel, took a step of faith in her life, in her troubled life, to believe in God, to act on her faith, to do something sacrificial, and then in the long run becomes his mom. He had a dad who married her. And so years and years later, when, not when Boaz is little, not when Boaz is a young adult, but when Boaz is an old man, not an old man, but an older man himself, when his life is well-established, when Boaz is wealthy, 
and powerful and influential, and now he's the big guy in Bethlehem. And one day, another foreign girl shows up, named Ruth. Another foreign girl shows up to help her mother-in-law, and she's poor, and she's a widow, and she has, no one's helping her out. Boaz looks at her and says, I recognize that. Boaz looks at Ruth, the girl, in trouble serving her mother-in-law, even though she wasn't from there. And Boaz says, huh, there's somebody who is sacrificing, who's chosen to step into faith in, in God and do the hard thing and serve other people. And he looked at Ruth, and I imagine that Boaz may have even thought to himself, I've seen that kind of faith before. I call her mom. I wonder if when the opportunity came for Boaz to, to marry Ruth and to do the things he did in the act of what that was at the time for the, for the legacy and, the, and the, the giving of wealth to, to, the, to the family of Elimelech, I wonder if Boaz said at the time, I know what to do in a situation like this because my dad did it. See, Boaz had parents who had to be pretty cool examples. What kind of man was Salmon, Boaz's dad, to take Rahab as his wife in the first place, seeing where she was and not where she used to be? What kind of woman was Rahab that reminded him of Ruth when he saw her struggling years later? Can I just speak to you as a, as a dad for a minute? Mom and dad's of all ages, whether you're raising little babies right now, whether you're raising children, teenagers, young adults, or your kids are grown and their kids are grown. It is very, very hard. You, mom and dad, we want our kids to turn out right, but we have so little control over so many things. They have to make faith their own. They've got to follow. They've got to decide to do the right things. I pray for my children I pray things like, Lord, help my children to, you know, have a faith, strong faith in you. I want my kids to be close to me when they're older, but more than that, I want them to be close to God. I pray that my children have a good marriage someday. I want them to be close to me, but more than that, I want them to have a good marriage. I pray for my kids to be good parents someday. I want them to be close to me, but more than that, I want them to be good parents. Now, I can't control any of that. I can pray. You know what else I can do? You know what else I can do besides pray? Michelle and I, can. we can be a good example. We can give them something so they can have a Boaz moment one day where they can look back and say, what do I do in this situation of my life? I know what to do with, that looks like mom. That looks like dad. And I don't care what stage of life you're at, mom and dad, whether you're young and you're trying to teach your children that faith should be a part of your busy life, even though you can make more money or rest in a little bit, but you still make it a point to go to church and, you, and stay active in your faith, and you show that example for years later when their life gets complicated as young adults someday after you, or whether it's you deciding as a, young, as a, as a middle-aged person that you're going to stay faithful and do the right thing and not cut corners and cheat, but be honest and giving and sacrificial and generous, whether you take those years of losing the, the nest, becoming empty, without becoming jaded and bitter and, and, and hard in life, but becoming a, a good person through those transitions. Whether you show them an example of how to get old someday and even glorify God in your death, because they'll be there one day too behind you. At any point of your life, your children are walking in shoes that one day they will stand where you stand. 
At some point, they'll stand where you stand. They might not always take the same straight path you got to get there. But wouldn't it be great if, besides praying for them, you could show them what it looks like to do it right? Just maybe, just maybe, the most odd time, like Boaz is a rich, wealthy, established man running Bethlehem, and all of a sudden one day, what? It all comes back. Maybe, just maybe, just maybe, no matter how weird the path and journey is, the day can come when you left behind a legacy. Let me ask you a question. What, mom and dad's grandparents, this goes for you too, because your kids and your grandkids are your kids. What are the hard choices that you will make that will make them easier choices for them to make someday, for your children to make someday? What are the hard things we've had to face this? What are the hard things you're willing to do to pave a trail so someone can? They might not, but they can make better choices someday. What unusual thing will be normal for your kids because of your example? And like with Salmon and Rahab and Boaz and Ruth and David, what will be your impact on your family history? What kind of a testimony an example do we leave behind? I want to ask it this way as we close. What do you want to see in your children? What do you want to see in your children? Again, I said earlier, there's things I pray for mine. I can't control those things. I know what I want, and there's a lot of things in my list. I want, to, I want to have a good relationship and be close. And that's very important to me. That when they're adults and we're close, I want that bad. But there are things higher than that on my list. And I pray, and I want that. I can't control it, but I want it. I can pray for it, and I can model it. What do you want to see in your children, Mom and Dad? What's on your prayer list? What's in, what is, it, what is the thing that you're praying for for your kids? What do you want to see in your children? Second question, can they see it in you? Can they see that thing you desperately want them to have in you? Hard work, faith, sacrifice, service, generosity, unconditional love, commitment, whatever, you, whatever is of value to you, can they see it in you? Do they know how to, what it's like to do the right thing when it's hard and not just the easy thing? I don't know about you, but I sure want to be the kind of person that, no matter what anyone else does, I can model what Jesus did for us by how I live myself in this world. We're not quite done with descendants today. There's one more conversation to have next Sunday.